You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the book of Galatians. We're calling Legalism to Liberty. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. Those of us who have been food servers at some point in our life may cheer for me as I say this. With the reopening of our cities and our way of life, maybe you've seen there's been a lot written and said lately about tipping our service providers. And if you were a person who ever was a food server, then you feel very strongly about tipping. And if you have not been a food server, maybe it's not been something you've ever given much thought to. What grabbed my attention was not only in this day and age where people are talking about the way we tip our food servers uh, and other service industry people, but I came across a blog uh, several years ago that I was reminded of, and it was titled, Seven Concerns About Christians and Tipping. And the person shares what they said is a true story. There were two pastors having lunch together. The older pastor had paid for the previous meal. And so the younger pastor had said that he would cover this meal. So when they came to the end, the younger pastor had paid cash for the meal. The older pastor looked back and said, did you include a tip? The younger pastor said he had forgotten, and so he put some cash on the table. As they were departing the restaurant, the younger pastor said he had forgotten something, and he returned into the restaurant. The older pastor, looking through the window, just curiously at what had been forgotten, saw the younger pastor go back, pick the money up off the table that had been lift, uh, left for the tip, and put that money back into his pocket. Now, hopefully, as the blog says, such stories are rare. But we do have reasons to be concerned when church members and Christian leaders treat restaurant servers and other service employees so poorly. And he says, allow me to outline several key concerns. Let me share some of those with you. Tipping is an opportunity we may not have otherwise. We have social contact with people with whom we may not interact with on a regular basis. This is our opportunity to represent the name of Christ well. That was his first one. Second one, our generosity is one way we can point people towards Christ. We demonstrate that our priorities on the way we we invest our resources. Number three, we can help counter some of the negative impacts of other church members. A server in a restaurant once told me she hated working the Sunday lunch shift because church members were the rudest and stingiest customers she encountered. Now, I will tell you that as a person that worked in a restaurant, that was the feel of every waitstaff member that I worked with. We have, as believers, a terrible reputation of how we tip on Sunday afternoons. uh, Fourth, generous tipping reflects a compassion and grateful heart. Many servers work long hours, endure hard days, uh, as so many of us. Number six, generous tipping can reinforce positive conversation with servers. Number seven, poor tipping can be a negative witness that takes time to overcome. A few years ago, several people in my organization went to lunch together, and they tipped very poorly. The server wrote about it on Facebook and was a clear reference to our organization. How many of us have ever thought about tipping as a way to manifest the gospel and love and care for people around us? 
I'm no longer in the service industry like that, so I've got no ax to grind other than to encourage us to think about what we're doing and how we process these kind of things. The older pastor comes back and said, I want you to know that I did go back to the restaurant later. I apologized to the server and left a significant tip for that, wait, uh, for that waiter that was caring for them. Now, I would guess I would ask you, what do you think about the topic? Have you ever considered the way that you tip a service provider is a ministry, an opportunity for you to reflect the love of Christ in the way that you step into somebody's life that you may never see again? What's the message to a food server who sees a table pray before a meal, but then leave a stingy tip and act rude to them throughout the meal? How do we think about those opportunities? This morning in our passage, it's the last section of the book of Galatians. I'd encourage you to open up. We'll be in Galatians chapter 6. And Paul's going to talk to us about how do we steward the resources that the Lord's entrusted to us. Apparently, the Galatians were struggling on how they were going to care for one another. And so where Jesus had told us in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so the Galatians are learning how to do that. And it's not their fault they haven't always known. These were a group of Gentile believers. This was new information to them. This isn't so much an attempt for for in this passage, for Paul to be upset with them, he's teaching them. He wants to teach us in the same way. How do we love and care for one another? If we're going to love one another the way that Jesus has loved us, how does that spill into our resources? And Paul's already uh, addressed several things. He's talked to us when we have a brother or sister in Christ who's erring or has fallen into sin, what's our role in that? He's talked with us about when somebody carries a burden that is overwhelming. How is it that we step into that person's life and help meet their needs and help them carry that overwhelming burden? He's talked to us about those things that only we can carry and what that looks like and how do we step in and how do we encourage somebody else to carry the load that they were intended to carry? What does that look like? Well, he's been covering all of that. And this morning, he brings us into this next section. Paul's telling the Galatians, this is what you're called to do. Whether you do it is between you and the Lord. I can't make you do it. But as we've talked about the last several weeks, I think Paul would want to say there is this judgment seat of Christ, and that's not intended to evoke fear. It's intended to be a reminder. The Lord sees, and he watches the way we invest our life. And the calling for us is to invest our lives the way he calls us to invest our life. And when we do, he says, I'm aware of what you're doing, and I will reward you for that. I will reward you for the sacrifices you make in this life. And so that's where we begin this morning. We pick up right where we were, and so we're going to be in Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 6. Paul writes this, Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Let's not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those 
who are of the household of faith. You hear the stewardship? You hear the stewardship? It comes up several times there. The first one that he offers is to support the minister, the ministry of the local body. And I'm sure there's some of you out there that are thinking, oh, here we go. Pastors always talking about money. That's what y'all do. I bet you if you've been at Grace Church any number of times, you can count on one hand the number of times you've heard Grace Church talk about money. We don't talk about it a lot. We're expositional in our teaching style. The vast majority of the time, the vast majority of the year, we spend our time teaching through books of the Bible. And we just go verse by verse. And so the scriptures will bring us to passages to teach. We don't pick and choose. We work through books of the Bible. And so we don't do that. And let me say this. Grace Church is incredibly gracious in the way that they provide for the pastoral staff of our church. This is not an ax to grind. But once again, the scriptures teach us this point, And it's our job to teach the whole counsel of scripture. So when we think about this, part of what God's doing, and we've talked about this at the judgment seat of Christ, is God has this, how he does it, because he's God, is he's got this great big spreadsheet. And so as we talk through that, when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, the reality that the Lord sees every investment that you make for him, with your time, with your talents, with your treasures, every investment you make in the work of the Lord, in whatever capacity you make it, the Lord sees it, and he makes a notation in his mind that I'm going to give a reward for that when that's done as unto the Lord. That's who he is. That's what he does. You see, the big picture of this is teaching them to provide for how God's at work. Now, this was new to the Gentile church, these Galatians. See, this wasn't what had always been. Voluntary giving was new. Essentially, the tithe system, and you may be really familiar with that word, the tithing system was, more, was mandatory. Matter of fact, in a lot of ways, it was more like a tax system. And if you think tithe, you may be familiar with where it comes from, that 10% thing. It actually was greater than that. Here's where the tithes broke out. In Numbers 18, we're told that the first tithe that you were to give annually was a 10% tithe. And it did support the Levites, which was a tribe of priests, and the ministers in their community. That was one of the tithes they had. That's the one you may be most familiar with. There also was an annual tithe of 9%. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 12. And it was to promote the spiritual and the social unity of the people. And so that's where the payment for the feast would have come in. If you're doing the math, you're up to 19%. There was a third tithe. This one was done every, every three years, and it was 3%. Deuteronomy 26 set this up, is it was basically the way they met the needs of the indigent in the community. It was more of their welfare system. And so on that third year, we're up to 22%. And then there was a fourth tithe. This one comes about in 1 Samuel 8. It was established by the king to fund their military. But you can see that every third year, your tithe was actually 30% of your income. On the other two years, it was only 27% of your income. But when we look at that, part of where Paul is going with the Galatians is you may be familiar with the fact that Israel gave money called a tithe into the system to support the system. And you may say, I'm not, it's not about us caring for the tribe of Israel, their ministers, their feasts. 
because we don't do that. It's not about our welfare system. We're not trying to do that. It's not about our military because that's just not part of who we are. And they would have been right in saying all of that. But this comes back to the fact that the lesson from Christ was to love others the way I've loved you. Love generously. Help step in. Help bear burdens that are overwhelming. Help invest your stewardship of your resources. Because for the first time, they're learning that giving was voluntary. No, it wasn't mandated, but it was something you could choose to do as unto the Lord and how you could step into that. See, according to this passage, let the one who's taught the word, let the ones who are taught the word share the good things the Lord has given them as they care for and help meet the needs of the ones who are offering them the good things of the word of their study. Our staff is very fortunate. We have the privilege of being cared for at such an incredible level by our church is that we are able to work in the church and not be bivocational. The invitation is to for us as a pastoral staff is we offer you the teaching of the word for you to invest back in us. We offer you the good, you offer us the good, and that's the way this was designed. Matter of fact, Paul in Philippians talks about this when he says, I thank my God in my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, Paul looks at this, this church in Philippi and says, I need you to know we're in partnership with one another. And that word partnership is, is not just a, a friendly term, hey, we're teammates, although it carries that. It's a business term. It speaks of a financial partnership. What Paul is saying to them is, I am the hands and feet that is sharing the gospel every day, everywhere I go, because you're funding my life. You have given it such a level of support that we're partners in this. I'm the mouthpiece. You're the financial backing of it, which allows me to be the mouthpiece. So there was a season where we know Paul was bivocational. We know that he was a tent maker. But what we now know is this, is because of your investment, Paul could dedicate himself 24-7 to the ministry of the gospel in the same way this church has allowed our pastoral staff to do the same thing. See, it's a gift to be able to do this. And so all of a sudden what we see is, if you look back in the passage in verse 7, we see a principle that's to guide us. It's called the law of sowing and reaping, where believers have the invitation to invest their resources in this. You see, God's character requires them to be just. If you sow unto him, there will be a reaping from him. You will reap a harvest. You can't pull one over on him. When we come to this passage and we see something where he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. I guess I would ask you, what do you hear in that verse? Do you hear a promise to claim? Do you hear from God saying, I see you. I see you living your life as an investment. I see you stewarding what I've entrusted to you for my purposes. And don't be fooled. I see it and I will reward you for it? Or is there the sense that says, uh-oh, God really does see. He sees what I'm doing, and that creates a level of fear in me. How do we respond? God will do what he says he's gonna do. We can't pull one over on him. We can't act as though I'm sowing, but, and it looks like I'm sowing, but I'm not really sowing. God sees that. 
See, I would want you to hear a great promise in that verse. Your faithful stewardship of what he's entrusted to you in your time, your talents, and your treasures, he sees it. And when you think nobody else around you sees it, nobody knows what I'm doing, nobody sees what I'm investing in, the Lord does. He sees it, and he says, I'm making note of it. And just like that farmer who will go and sow seed, it's, when it's time to sow the seed, it's not going to raise a harvest right now. It takes time. It takes patience. But that's what it looks like. And so when we talk about sowing and reaping, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If you think through Galatians 5, where it talks about the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit, and we talk through it, and that breaks down the works of the flesh into sexual sin, religious sin, relational sins, decadent sins, was the breakdown I offered to you a couple of weeks ago. If our life is spent sowing sexual sin, religious sin, relational sin, and decadent sins, think about what that life reaps. God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. doesn't mean we lose our salvation, but a life built on those things will not bring about what you hope to reap. So plan accordingly. Because it, then he goes on, he talked about the fruit of the Spirit, habits of the mind, reaching out to others, and our general conduct. In Paul's words, it looked like this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Consider with me what it looks like to sow a lifestyle of that and what that reaps. Does God always apply this law? Yes. It may not be in our time frame. It may not even be while you remain alive. But God will always do his work. It may not even be something you can see. God may be doing something and you may not be able to see it. Because sometimes the law of sowing and reaping isn't visible to us. In the life of the other person who's living out these works of the flesh, it could be a seared conscience. It could be something that they just close off their mind to the word of the Lord, and you may not ever see, see that. You may not recognize that. That's okay, because God's not about you understanding the reaping of another person. That's not between you and God and that other person. That's between God and that person. What does it look like to reap? Well, we know in the future it's a judgment seat of Christ. But what about now? I think that's part of that abundant life of John 10, that I know that, uh, Lord, you see me. Lord, you see what I'm doing. You see my stewardship. You see my investments. And there is a fulfillment in that when we walk in the uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You just stay on the track. And the Lord will sustain you because that's who he is, and that's what he does. We're going to support the minister, but we're not just going to support that. We're going to support everybody. You see that in verse 9 and 10? We're to invest our financial resources on behalf of others. And he said, he talked about growing weary. You know what? We've all grown weary. We've grown weary. So, Lord, how much do I invest in this? Time, talent, strength. How much do I invest in this? I'm losing heart. Matter of fact, that word was used, if you think about a bow and arrow, if you think about a bow, that works because of the tension of the string. Losing heart, growing weary, talks about the fact that the string has so much slack in it is that you can't use it to launch an arrow anymore. He says, don't become like that string with too much slack because you can't launch your arrows anymore. And the arrows that the Lord's entrusted to you to shoot out into the community as a steward of the resources, 
your time, talents, and treasure. Don't become like that. You allow the Lord to minister to your heart. Don't grow weary. Keep the strength in that string so you can continue to launch arrows and know this, God sees what you're doing. That's a good word for us. It's easy to become discouraged. Much like the psalmist over and over in the psalm says, oh Lord, how long? How long? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard and we keep doing it. Let me show you what scripture says. Turn over if you would, keep your finger here in Galatians chapter six and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter eight. I'm not gonna go very far. It's gonna be to your left a little bit in your Bible. When Scripture talks to us about stewarding our resources, there's a couple of sections here that I think are probably the most significant in the New Testament. We as a church don't teach a tithe. It gets a little confusing. Plus, we feel like the New Testament church offers us a different way to think about it. And so in this first section of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I think we are given an example. And I want you to listen for these things. What we're going to see is this, is your giving is intended to be proportional to your means. It's not a competition. It's in proportion to what the Lord's entrusted to you. It's intended to be a response. It's intended to be an act of worship. And we think it moves us into what we call grace giving, not grace giving as in grace church giving, grace giving. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, I want you to listen for those things. We want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that is to be given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. See, this is that partnership thing. Verse 5, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace, grace giving. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also, grace giving. That's our example. Here's the principle. Drop down, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Here's the principle. It's intentional. It's freely acting according to the law of sowing and reaping. Listen. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that they are boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said that you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge you, brothers, to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised that may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. See the principle? It's intentional. It's not a math formula because a math formula doesn't require you to process, think through, what can I do? What would it look like? No, it is intentional. It is freely done, and it is acting in an act according to the law of sowing and reaping. 
That's the principle. You want to reap a lot, then you sow a lot. You want to reap a little, then you sow a little. It's a principle for how we do it. What's the heart behind it? Purposeful, cheerful, trusting, and seeking what the Lord has. Look down at verse 7, chapter 9 still. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. Not a formula, not reluctantly or under compulsion. We're not trying to take anything from you, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It changes the whole system. This isn't a taxation. This isn't an exaction. We're not trying to extract anything from you. This is, Lord, I believe that you are at work, and there is a law of sowing and reaping, and I want to step into that. That's why Grace's statement on giving is this. We believe giving is a form of individual worship. It should be done freely and without compulsion. You may give discreetly at offering boxes located throughout the building or online at any time. We don't pass offering plates for a reason. It's not between you and the Lord and the person to your right and left. What do you want to see the Lord do with what you invest back in him. He goes on to say in Galatians 6, if you go back to Galatians chapter 6, is we've got to prioritize these resources because we don't have an unlimited number of them. And so when we come back to them, we see things like verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. Limited resources require prioritization. We can't help everybody. As one pastor has said, do for one what you wish you could do for all. You can't help everyone. We've got to serve within our biological family. We've got to serve within our faith family. How else do we do it? We live in a community. Churches have always been the ones that stepped into the forefront of orphanages and medical care and hospital care. That's who we are. God calls us to do that. Love one another in the way that I've loved you extravagantly, caring for, meeting needs. Some of you probably don't know that we've got a community impact team that the elders have empowered. We offer them a sum of money a year. And so each of the four quarters of the year, they invest those resources in our community. Some of those are to secular organizations, uh, social agencies. Some of them are to faith-based agencies. Do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. Let me give you some numbers so you can see what our church has been doing. And I'm just going back to 2015. And I'm going to read these in order of years from 2015. $20,000, $12,500, $17,750, And in 2021, in the year of COVID, when we couldn't meet, God so abundantly met our needs through the faithfulness of our people who said, even in the midst of this, I'm going to continue to steward my resources as unto the Lord because of the law of sowing and reaping. Our church invested $65,000 back in our community. You know what that total is? $196,525. Now look at these organizations. These were the ones that were in the social agencies that are not faith-based in their originating documents. We've got people serving in all of these things. Patsy's House, the food bank, the food pantry. We look at things like Meals on Wheels, Boys and Girls Clubs, the American Red Cross, the Hospitality House, the center. 
over and over and over again. Be, do good to everyone. How about the faith-based ministries? How about Child Evangelism Fellowship, Christ Counseling Ministry, Bible Fund Fellowship, Faith Mission, the Salvation Army, Straight Street, and Young Life? Let me go a step further. See, that doesn't even touch the reality of our benevolence needs. We support interfaith ministries. We've given them $7,500 in the last several years. Our church family, through the benevolence of our church family, we have reached $35,000 of resources to people in our church family since 2015. Still doing the math? Let me tell you. $239,000 since 2015. Do good to everyone, especially those who believe. And as I talk about God's great big spreadsheet, if you're investing in the life of the church and God's great big spreadsheet, if you are supporting the ministries of this church, you have touched all of those people, almost a quarter million dollars in the last seven years. Because we're not exempt. Those numbers are inclusive of what we're investing back. Do good to all. Don't grow weary. Do good to all, especially those who believe. And by the way, if you're serving in those and we're stewarding our time, talents, and treasures, and you're serving using your time and your talents, the number of man hours that are donated to those agencies, we can't even put a dollar on because we're just out there faithfully serving, doing what the Lord is calling us to do. And he says, in due season, we're gonna reap. Can we trust him? Has he ever once failed us? How do we step into that? Well, that word season is a word, we've talked about it before, it's, it's a word for time. It's not chronology, it's not minutes and seconds, it speaks of opportunities in time that were presented. It's the word kairos, it's why we call our quarterly magazine kairos, opportunities, how the Lord's at work. See, all of a sudden, what he's saying is, in due season, at the right time, at the proper time, God's going to do something, we know that he is. And sometimes we get those opportunities to give, and because we don't like having to prioritize, we're like, oh, here's another request. Here's another opportunity for me to sow. If I could impact your thinking just for a moment, maybe it's an opportunity for you to reap. Maybe somebody just doesn't want your money. Maybe somebody just wants to offer you the opportunity to say, hey, would you like to partner with me with what I'm doing? I want to go be the mouthpiece. I want to go be the hands and feet, but I need some help to do that. Part I'm asking you for is, would you like to partner with me in prayer, in, in commitment, in giving? And it becomes an opportunity to reap. See, it's real different. But know this, we won't reap outside of God's timing. We can't, because we, can, we aren't in control. Our stewardship matters, and we steward it according to the law of sowing and reaping. Look at how he wraps up the book. We come all the way through that. That's the last thing he kind of handles in how to love and care for people And then he offers some final words to them, starting in verse 11. Paul writes, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so they can boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to this world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
be with you in spirit, brothers. Amen. He comes full circle from where he began, offering grace and peace to coming back to grace and peace again. Paul validates, he says, everything in this letter is by my hand. I know it. Matter of fact, we talked earlier about this affliction that he had. Maybe it was eyesight. Maybe that's why he said, see, I write this with my own hand in these big letters. Maybe it's for emphasis. Don't miss this. You hear Paul's heart. He is angry. He's done with people perverting the gospel. It's a problem. Why? He only goes on to tell you, because these people are who are trying to use you. They're trying to make a good outward impression. They don't live up to the law themselves. And matter of fact, you're nothing more than a notch in their belt. They're trying to use you for their purposes. They can't do what they say they're going to do. Matter of fact, they want to avoid persecution. Come on, don't you see it? Come on. They don't even fulfill the law themselves. Be aware. Paul says, I'm clinging to the gospel. My confidence is the cross and only in the cross. I'm not motivated by this world. I don't care what this world has to say. I've died to this world. I'm living for the audience of one. I'm going to stand before him one day, and I want to hear those words, job well done, good and faithful servant. It's not about circumcision. It's not about behaviors. It's not about whatever you think matters. It's about the cross, and it's about being a new creation. And what we know is this, circumcision doesn't create a new creation. No behavioral, behavioralism makes a new creation. It's for everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. The new creation is found at the cross. And Paul says, you can look at my body. You can look at my body. I bear the scars because I'm being beaten for this message, and I will not step down. It's too significant. I love this. Legend has it that a church member once asked Martin Luther, why do you preach the gospel to us week after week? We do that every week in here. If you've been with us through Galatians, it comes up every week. Luther replied, because week after week, you forget it. We never graduate from the good news that Jesus gives us grace. I need it. I need it every week because everything in my life wants to draw me back to something I can manage. Life feels out of control. Let me control something. Let me control my spiritual life. Let me find ways to find power. And it just isn't there, is it? But we fall into it. And the good news of the gospel every week is that Jesus Christ died for you. He loves you. There's forgiveness. There's reconciliation. And there's an invitation to get up off the ground. He dusts you off. It's not us. We can't even dust ourselves off. We confess. He dusts us off, and he invites us back into the race. He says, I love you. I love you more than your failures. And we get invited back into it. And Paul says, that's why this matters. Years ago, we had a speaker at a men's retreat, a good friend named Ken, and we were driving back, and as we were driving back, we stopped to grab lunch on Sunday afternoon, and we walked into a restaurant. The restaurant had a number of tables. They literally had just opened, and our waitress, it took her a long time to get to us. I'd only seen her. I hadn't seen anybody else, but I'd seen her, and she's dealing with all the tables, and when she gets to us, you could tell she was frantic. She was beyond herself already, and... Uh, and Ken looked at her and said, it's been a tough day already, hasn't it? And she said, yeah, I'm the only one that showed up to work. The other three waitresses haven't arrived yet. I've got every table by myself. And my friend Ken taught me something that day. He looked at her and said, it's okay. We're going to be fine. Whenever you can get to us, get to us. If you want to drop a pitcher of water off at the table, that would be fine. 
but you don't worry about us at all. And when we check out today, we're going to leave you the biggest tip you will get today. Don't worry about us. And you want to talk about the world rolling off of her, uh, off of her back as she smiled. And you know what? He didn't do it to manipulate her. Guess who got the most attention the rest of the lunch? Because he offered her grace. Because he saw an opportunity to extend the gospel. Remember, we talked about the four battles that we have to battle for. And the fourth one that I talked about was redeeming every opportunity for the cause of Christ. And Ken jumped on it, and I learned something that day. He decided to sow with the opportunity that maybe it would lead to reaping at some point. If she'd asked us, why would you do this for me? You don't know me. Ken and I would have been ready to share the gospel with her. And I would love for you guys to do the same thing. One point years ago in our college ministry, we were talking about this generous stewardship thing, and I asked our our college student, why don't you pay for the person behind you in the drive-thru line and just offer that to somebody? It never occurred to me that the next day when I went to the McDonald's right down the road and went through that drive-thru and I did it, somebody said, what is going on with people today? And I said, what do you mean? They said, you're the 10th person to do that through our drive-thru today. Our college students took me up on it and they just started paying for cars behind them and it was freaking out the people at McDonald's. If somebody said, why would you do it? Could you share the gospel with them? In your bulletin this morning, you have a handout. I want you to pull it out. I want you to know what you have there. If you're here this morning and you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, I want you to listen and learn how to share the gospel. If you're here this morning and you've not yet trusted Christ as a Savior, I want to make this abundantly clear what the gospel is, okay? Number one reason people tell me they don't share the gospel is they don't know enough of the Bible. They don't know how to do it, and they feel unsure of themselves. One verse. All you need to know is one verse. Highlight it in your Bible, underline it, keep this sheet in there as a bookmark, and you will be ready to go at a moment's notice. You ready? What verse? Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everything you need to share the gospel is in that verse. And this is how we're going to do it. First big word we talk about is wages. Wages, something that you earned is not freely given. It's the end of a pay period of your job. If somebody brought you, here's your gift check, you would say, no, no, that's not a gift check. That's a wage check. I earned that. What's the wage for? Well, sin. It's those things that are there of sin that speaks of not righteousness. Matter of fact, that word literally means, and all these definitions are on the back of your sheet, it literally means to miss the mark. It was an archery term that you didn't hit the bullseye. For spiritual terms, you missed the bullseye of God's righteousness. By little or a lot, doesn't matter. You missed the bullseye. Whether or not you're in the next ring or you miss the target altogether, you miss the mark. And the wage that you earn for missing the mark is death. And it's not just physical death, It's eternal death. It's an eternal separation from God at every step. Thankfully, the verse doesn't end there because if we keep looking at the significant words, we're going to come to this word gift. And it's in direct opposition to a wage. Unlike a wage that's earned, a gift is something that the giver gets to choose and it costs you nothing as the receiver. That's a gift. And it's offered to you on the basis of 
the giver. And the giver gets to choose it. And this giver decided to offer eternal life. Excuse me, this gift was of God. It stands in opposition to of sin, and it speaks of God. Whereas as the sin missed the mark of God's righteousness, this has to be complete righteousness because it's from God himself. There's no, there's no loss of righteousness. God gives it to him. And so we can trust the gift. And what that life means is eternal life the opposite of death. See, there's a wage that's of sin that leads to death. There's a gift that's of God that leads to eternal life. And the reality is that is two different worlds. And every one of us is on that left world. And it is a chasm that we can't get across. And we can't get across it through behavioralism, through circumcision, through scripture memorization, through attending church, by being good enough. Those things don't get you across because the wage that you and I have earned for missing the mark is death. That's the reality of the message. But see, there's one word, one really significant word that we skipped over. Did you catch it? It's that word, but. Because we were on this side, we're on that left side, but there's another way. There's another way. We're not left and abandoned on that left cliff. We're abandoned on that cliff by our own selves. We can't get across it. How do we get across? Well, there it is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the path. That's the only way to cross that chasm and get us from the left cliff to the right cliff. How does it happen? Confessing our sins, recognition that the wage that we've earned for our sin is death and that we're separated from God and we can't fix it. There's no way across that chasm. The only way is confessing the recognition of that and the recognition that through Christ Jesus our Lord, we have the capacity on the basis of who he is and what he did to cross over that chasm. That's the gift of eternal life. And that is the good news of the gospel that has been offered to you and me. Don't miss it. You don't get across the chasm through anything other than Christ. Don't believe that you stay on the right side because of your behavioralism. You're eternally secure over there based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is a gift to you and me. We don't get to earn it, which is why Paul says, I'm going down. I've had it with you people perverting the gospel. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. You can also hear each week's message Sunday mornings on 89.5 FM KMOC. Listen to our podcast online anytime at gracechurch.com or find us in the Apple Podcast directory. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.